Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. I'm going to warn you right now, this is going to be a strange episode. I'm in a very odd, weird mood right now. And I, I, I did a couple of gigs over the weekend Really, it was one gig, but I played in two different bands. Uh, I did a, there were, they had a little festival in town where they blocked off the street. And it was a craft beer and glass blowing festival. There were about, I, I understand it was a sellout and there were about 2,000 people there. It was pretty cool. So the Pluck Tones played and I played bass with them. That was at the end. And in the first set, I played Dobro with, I call them Pat's Bunch. I'm not even sure they really even have a name, but that outfit that I I play Dobro with on Tuesday nights at the little pizza place called Pat's Place down here in Americus, Georgia. And, you know, from time to time, people see them playing and they say, hey, can you play such and such? And once in a while, they will go out and perform. And so I was doing that. Very, very busy weekend, and I came home, and on Sunday, I thought, you know, I'm going to get some lawn mowing done, because I've got 10 acres here, and probably about four of it I hit with the mower. I go out there, and I get started. I think I'm going to start right at the road, because there's all this, looks like ryegrass or something that comes up and gets real green and real tall early in the spring. I'm going to mow, you know, along the the banks and along the road and stuff. Just knock that down. I make about two passes and a bearing goes out in the mower deck and it sounds like, oh, it, it sounded bad. It sounded like that thing was going to come apart. So I began to tear the mower apart and got tired of fooling with that and was just sitting around the house thinking. And the strangest story came to my mind, which I'm going to get to in a minute. Uh, first, let me get out of the way a little plug for my website, because after all, that is the purpose. One of the purposes of doing this podcast is to promote my own site with all the free lessons and the videos and the ebooks and all that kind of stuff. And I need to get that little plug in there because as I've said several times before, if I don't sell a little something over there, I can't keep doing this. So let me mention the website, bradleylaird.com. You can go over there and take your first free claw hammer banjo lesson, bluegrass banjo, dulcimer, a mandolin. I got all kind of stuff over there. And then if you want to get into it a little bit deeper, you will find all of that there. So that's enough about that. Now, hormones, hormones and bluegrass. I was thinking about this, this story. I was, I was telling John, our mantle player in the pluck tones, we were hanging around waiting to go on. And I told him this little tale. I didn't, I didn't fully flesh it out though. You know, I had to make it kind of quick and was explaining, you know, 
this thing that happened to me in 1985. So I'm just going to tell you about it now. In 1983, I joined the band Cedar Hill from Atlanta. And pretty hot band. We were we were playing all the festivals around in the southeast. Very good band. And I was in hog heaven because, you know, I was used to playing on, you know, flatbed trailers beside the library, a little, little town festivals and backyard parties and all this kind of stuff. And I got in with this bunch and wow, they were booked here and booked there. You know, they were playing at the Dahlonega Bluegrass Festival where I saw Bill Monroe play. I'm like, I have got into the right bunch. They played a lot of those Norman Adams festivals like Myrtle Beach and Jekyll Island. And if you if you remember, if you've listened to my interview with Mike Marshall, we briefly talked about some of those festivals down in South Florida or in, in Florida. And we we talked about how we we were at some of the same festivals, you know, when he was a lot younger and so was I. But come along to about 1985. Well, well, it was 1985. I know because I was married to my first wife and she was pregnant. So we booked this festival. Cedar Hill booked a festival called the Quail Run Bluegrass Festival. It was put on and organized by a band called Orange Blossom Bluegrass. And it was at a at a big RV park. I, I think it still exists. I think it's called the Quail Run RV <laughs> Park or something. And it's just a little bit north of Tampa, Florida, which is a pretty long car ride from Atlanta. So Cedar Hill is booked to play at this festival, and they got they got a bunch of good bands going to be there. We were really excited about this festival, and I tell my wife about it, and she is, as the festival rolls around, she is about seven and a half, eight months pregnant. And she uh, decides that she would like to go to the festival with us. Okay. So we're planning what we're going to do and how we're going to get down there. We don't have a big tour bus or anything like that. So we're driving cars. We got five members of the band and my wife. So I decided after discussion with the guys and so on that it would probably be wise if we took two cars and not crammed all six people into one vehicle. So we did a little caravan of two cars and that way, if we had, you know, a mechanical breakdown or something like that, you know, we would at least have two vehicles. Somebody could go off and find auto parts or something. Because you got to remember, this is in the days before cell phones and GPS and all that kind of stuff. So the day rolls around for it's time to go. We got to go. And if I'm not mistaken, we were playing... I can't recall if we played on Friday night or whether it was just, I I can't remember. Might've been two sets on Saturday. That seems like what was what we were booked for. So we drove on Friday 
And I thought, well, when we get down there, we're not taking an RV or anything like that. So the band decided to book some motel rooms. And I think we were at a holiday inn, probably four or five miles away from the festival grounds. So we booked a couple of rooms and one of the rooms was just for me and my wife. And another of the rooms were for some of the other guys. I think we might've had three rooms because, you know, if you bring your wife along, you, you want to have your own room, especially if you bring your eight month pregnant wife along, it's a good idea to have your own room. So everything was uneventful on the way down there. You know, we're just driving. It's probably, I don't know, eight hours or eh, maybe not quite that much, but it's a long drive. And we made little stops along the way and, you know, stopped it to eat and stuff like that. We're just motoring our way down there and we, we get all the way down there, drive by the festival, find out where that's at. And then back to the motel, get checked into our room. So we're, we're good to go. And as I recall, seems like we were not playing Friday, but we went over to the festival and hung around a while and maybe watched a couple of bands, then went back to the room. Yeah, this get a little hazy. This has only been, I think, 33 years ago. So I may have some of the details incorrect, but I do remember the high points, which I will get to. So on Saturday, we're at the festival. We've set up our record table. We have our new album, Mama Don't Allow. We're the big time. We're playing the big time. We got our table right next to the Virginia Squires. And we liked them a lot because they were about the same age as us. There were other well-known bands there. And I, I did a little scouring on Google, to see if I could come up with a festival flyer from this and I couldn't find it, but I don't remember all the bands that were there, but it was a pretty hefty lineup as I recall. So we're at the festival. We play our, show or shows. I think it was two sets probably went on 11 in the morning and then maybe, you know, like five or six o'clock. I, I don't recall exactly. And the rest of the time we, we spent hanging around the record table selling records. And as I recall, they were moving pretty good and it was cool sitting right next to the, the Virginia Squires. I think they had a couple of records at that point and just talking to them and hanging around all day. And my wife is hanging around, listening to some of the bands, you know, going to the, to the little vendors and stuff, having a nice time. Everything is cool. Well, when the show winds down at the end of the night, we, we hang around a little longer, you know, just in case as people are leaving, they'll come over and want to buy a, buy a record album. Once it was clear that everything was pretty much over, we pack up the records, the, the card table and our, we had this table cover that our bass player made that had, he had hand sewn on there, the letters Cedar Hill across the front out of yellow felt. So we, we had to pack all this stuff up, go stow it in one of the cars. Well, while we were doing that at some point, couple of the guys from the Virginia Squires and a couple of our guys got to talking and the Virginia Squires, in case you don't recall that band, uh, 
were Sammy Sheeler was their banjo player. And the guitar player was a guy named Mark Newton. And it was Ricky and Ronnie Simpkins. Very cool band. You can, if you don't know them, I, I'm sure you know some of those names, but if you don't know them, just pull up some old videos on YouTube of the Virginia Squires. Really cool band, hot pickers, and young dudes. This is at early stages of their careers. And when you're that age, you don't just go back to the bus or to the motorhome and just go to bed. You want to pick, you know? They were still young enough that they wanted to jam and pick. So this jam session got started. And I want to kind of lay out the scene. Just picture this. It's an RV park. And the stage is sort of at the edge of the RV park. And there's a large grass field. And that was the day parking. The day, the day parkers just parked out in this big grass field. Just picture about four or five football fields in size. I mean, this is probably five acres. That was the day parking. And when, when we arrived, it was beginning to fill up. The campers, the RVs were all in their slots and the, the stage was nestled into its area. But because we were, we were staying in a motel, we had to drive over and the band went over and managed to kind of get into the festival area because they had the record table and they had the bass fiddle, all that kind of stuff. So they kind of got in. My wife and I were a bit slower in you know getting ready to go over. So when we got there, we had to park in that big field. And then we just walked, you know, carried lawn chairs and stuff and walked down. And she got herself situated for the day's events. And I found the guys and, you know, we did all the show. But I, I wanted to, I wanted you to picture the, my car, which was a 19, I think it was a 1982 Toyota Corolla four-door. And that's what we drove down there in. Really liked that little car. Um, and I took it because it had air conditioning. That's sort of the reason I wanted to take that car because my wife is extremely pregnant right now. And that's a long drive down in really hot country in the middle of the summer. And we probably need that air conditioner. So that's the scene. We're parked way out in the middle of a field. And then we do the festival all day. We played. Audience loved it. We were digging the other bands. Everything about the day was perfect. It's hard to beat that when everything is going perfect. However, like most perfect days, sometimes something goes awry. <laughs> and to remind you of the other side of the coin. So after the show, the show wound down. The Virginia Squires guys are, they're wanting to pick. And I don't know what they were traveling in, a van or a motorhome or something. I, I don't remember, but somehow or another, Cedar Hill and the Virginia Squires got together and started jamming. We were at the edge of the RV park. And we picked. We probably picked for an hour just jamming, hanging out and jamming. 
And my wife was there. And she was... Brought her lawn chair over there and was sitting there. Listening. I have to admit, and I'm guilty of this. I was paying more attention to the jam session than to my wife. (laughs) I'm sure I was. I didn't really even hardly notice her there. And that was probably my big mistake. And it's probably now about midnight. We're having a good old time. And I, I'm checking on her, you know, now and then. Can I get you anything? That kind of thing. But apparently I wasn't doing that enough. And I turn, at the end of a song, I turn and I look. And she's gone. Well, that's, you know, she's just not there. She's probably walked over to get herself something to drink or something. So we played another song. And at the end of that song, I look again. She's still, she's not here. She's not here. Where has she gone? I become a little bit concerned. And so I walk away from the jam session a little bit. And I kind of look out across that field, way across that field. I can see my little blue Toyota. It's the only car left out there, and it's probably about 250 yards away. I can see the car. I'm I'm looking. Did she go to the car? It's dark, and I don't see anybody. So I turn back to the jam session, and I ask the guys. I said, hey, did you see where my wife went? No. Of course, nobody was paying any attention to her at all. So I thought, well, you know what? It's been a great day. I'm going to put my mantle in the case. I'm going to walk over to the car. Maybe she's gone to the car. You know? So I put my mantle in my case. This is the culmination of the perfect day for an up-and-coming bluegrasser. And I'm walking down the gravel little road. And RV park to my right and big field to my left. And there's the car way, way out there. So I'm just beelining straight towards the car, not in any great hurry. I'm just kind of looking for her. I'm I'm looking around. Maybe she's not even out there. But if she's not out there, I'll just put the mantle in the car and I'll go find her. And, you know, we'll go back to the motel or something. Okay. So I'm walking across the field, just straight towards that little blue Toyota. And it's facing me. And the headlights come on. And I hear the engine start. Now I'm about 75, 80 yards away. And I'm still walking towards it. Oh, okay. I found her. She's in the car. She's obviously ready to go. Hopefully I'm not in trouble. And I'm walking towards the car. And the car hasn't moved. I can hear the little sewing machine engine running. And the headlights are on. And as I get within about... 30 yards of the car. I'm walking straight towards it. Got my mandolin in my right hand. Walking straight towards the car. Towards the passenger side because I'm thinking she's obviously in the driver's side. Can't see much. Headlights are in my eyes. And to this day, I swear it was the high beams. So I'm now about 20 yards away. 
walking towards the car, and she floors it. And she is coming straight for me. Literally, dead center. That car is going to mow me down. And just at the last instant, I dive to the left, and my mandolin case rakes up across the hood and across the windshield. My right hip breaks off the, the mirror on the passenger side door and knocks me to the ground. She didn't actually hit me except with the mirror. But she was trying to run me down like a dog, like the dirty dog that I was. And I guess, you know, I've never been pregnant, but I, I've heard that there's a lot of hormonal activity that can make you go a little nuts. And I think that's what happened. And I probably a, a jury would acquit her of murder. Because I've wondered sometimes, what if she really did run me over? What if she just plowed me over and, you know, I got to see the oil pan of the car as it went over me? Luckily, I dived. I swear she did not swerve. She gunned it straight toward me. I dived out of the way. I'm rolling around on the ground, bewildered. I don't understand women. I don't really know for sure what has exactly happened. I get up, I check myself. I'm like, I don't have any broken bones or I'm not bleeding or anything. You know, I was pretty young and healthy, <laughs> luckily. And I turn to my right and I see those taillights. She's making a big arc across that field. I see those taillights just go out of sight. She gets to the, the entrance. She turns and she's on the road now and I just watched that car just drive away, and it's really flat and open down there in Florida. And those taillights off in the distance disappear, and there I am standing there. First thing I did was open my mantling case, wanted to make sure my mantling was okay, which it was. I'm just standing there. I stood there probably five or ten minutes, just completely bewildered. And I thought, well... I'll walk back to the jam session, get one of the guys to give me a ride back to the motel. Cause obviously she's, <laughs> she's hacked off and she's gone back to the motel. She had the room key for our room. I figure I better get on back there, you know, calm down, make sure she, everything's okay. So I go back to the guys and they're in the middle of a tune and I wait till the tune stops and I, ask our bass player, I said, Hey, Hey Fred, can you, uh, you give me a ride? Um, my wife, I'm, I'm not mentioning her name to protect the guilty. Um, but Hey, the statute of limitations on attempted murder has surely run out by now. Anyway, I, I said, Hey, Hey Fred, you know, she just tried to run me over with the car and she left. Can you give me a ride back to the motel? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. So that was sort of the trigger to kind of wind down the jam session. Everybody said their goodbyes and boy, wasn't that fun and all that. And this is, you know, that, that took 20 minutes and pile in the cars and head back to the motel, pull in 
And that motel, you know, had doors on the outside and you parked pretty much right in front of your room. So we pull into the rooms. My car is not there. It's nowhere to be seen. Hmm. I don't know where she is. So we put our instruments in the rooms and Fred and I hopped in his, whatever they were driving. I think it was a Ford Ranchero. And we must have had three vehicles down there that day. Anyway, we hop in, we'd ride around a little bit. We ride back to the festival grounds, drive around. It's just, it's pretty much a ghost town at that time of night. It's now one, one thirty in the morning, back to the motel, go drive all around. Can't find her. Figure, I don't know where she is. I mean, what are you going to do? So I, I go in the room. I think, well, I could call home, but there's no way she's home. I mean, that'd be sometime tomorrow morning she would arrive back home. There's really nothing you can do. You guys feel like picking any? <laughs> no, we didn't do that. I said, all right, I'm just going to go to bed. If she comes back, she comes back. If she don't, she don't. I don't know. So I get up the next morning about six thirty, seven o'clock expecting her to be there. She's not there. I look outside. The car's not there. She is not there. So I'm, I'm debating. Do I call the police or what? I mean, I don't know. Well, the guys are getting up too, cause we're going to head back home. So we decided to go down to, they have a little, um, you know, diner, a little restaurant. So we decided to go down there and get some coffee and some breakfast and stuff and decide what to do. And I'm like, you know, have you guys seen her? No, I hadn't seen her. I don't, I don't know where she is. So we're sitting there eating our eggs and grits and trying to, they're not real concerned, but I'm pretty concerned. I mean, like, I don't know what she's done. She could be off, you know, run off a bridge somewhere. I, I don't know. But I was also a little hacked off, too, because she tried to kill me. So we're sitting there talking about all this. And as soon as we're done, we're going to check out and hit the road. She walks in the front door. She she pulls up in front of the place, walks in, all smiles, comes. There's I think there was only four of us there that morning. The fiddle player, he had a tendency to kind of go off by himself. I think he met some girl or something. We weren't planning on seeing him that morning. So it's just the four of us sitting there and uh, I see her and I just kind of scoot over and she sits down right beside me and she's just like, hey, guys, how's it going? Like, I'm good. How you doing? Good. Okay. And she ordered some breakfast. And she ate breakfast, just chatting it up. I figured the best thing to do was not not bring it up. So nobody said anything about, like, where were you? <laughs> Nothing. I figured I'd do that on the way home. So we uh, we all get up, pay our bill check out, get the car, open the door for, and I noticed when I opened the door for, that was when I noticed that the mirror was gone on the passenger side. I also noticed that the windshield wiper on the passenger side was missing. There was a big scratch, big like up the hood. Put her in the car, close the door, go around, get in the driver's side, 
driving home. We probably drove a couple hours before I had the nerve to finally bring it up. She just being up pleasant as could be. And I said, where'd you go last night? She said, I went home. <laughs> There's no way she could have gone home and been back there. She said, but it got to be about four o'clock in the morning. And I realized I was too tired to continue. So I turned around and I came back and she was just pulling up. She had driven all night long. Well, that cleared the air and, uh, I dropped it. I figured that is not something I should probably bring up. Anyway, I, I don't know what the moral of this story is. I, I think that I've said this before. Sometimes the best story is one where you draw your own conclusions. They're probably always better that way. I know that I drew a few conclusions from that incident of attempted murder in the parking lot of a bluegrass festival. And I hope things like that never happen to you. And by the way, nothing like that ever happened again. Our child was born. I wanted to name her Amanda Lynn. I thought that would be really cool. I didn't know that anybody else had done that. And I, I subsequently ran into four or five people over the years who have named their daughter Amanda Lynn. Because my wife liked the name Amanda. It was really popular in 1985. And I thought, I'll slide this right in there. How about Lynn? Amanda Lynn. Didn't, didn't tell her, you know. And we were in the hospital. This is, a, you know, a month later. And the, the, the nurse comes around with some papers to fill out. I write, Amanda, Lynn, I'm going to get away with this. Laird. This is great. Hand it in. She grabbed that thing and scratched it out. Scratched out Lynn. I said, what are you doing? We're not going to name her Lynn. I know what you're trying to do. I was caught. So I said, how about Courtney? She's a, okay. And she wrote Courtney. Little did she know, I suggested Courtney in honor of Courtney Johnson, the banjo player for New Grass Revival. Anyway, draw your own conclusions from this. And I hope that sort of thing never happens to you. I'm sure that I learned a few lessons from that. And I hope that you did too. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. I told you it was going to be a strange one. I'll talk to you in the next podcast.